0: It's embarrassing, all the stupid things I can think of to think about. Is there anything that could really bring my mind
1: back to my senses? Welcome, neighbor, to Folk U Radio, Folk University's talk show, taking old school viral. I'm your host. Amanda O'Fox Gillespie.
0: It's embarrassing, all the stupid things I can think of to think about. Is there anything that could really bring my mind back to my senses?
1: Hello, neighbor, and welcome to another issue episode. Folk You Radio, where we ask our neighbors, what do you know? Folk University is an experiment in neighborliness, in slow learning, in using our interests, our skills, and our beliefs as a way of connecting and bringing each other closer in community. Today, we're learning more about the powerful potential of neighbors folks like you and I in doing meaningful science data collection and otherwise serving to support ecological monitoring research and stewardship. We have two guests joining us to share more about the power, potential and tools of citizen science. Our neighbor, Helen Hall from Friends of Cortez Island and or otherwise known as Foci, and Kelly Fretwell from the Hakai Institute. Where are you listening to from today, neighbor? Who are the people that have walked and cared for the land, the water, and the air where you live, work, and play. Cortez Community Radio sits on the ancestral and territorial lands of the Klahus, Kla'amen, and Hamako peoples. I'd like to thank this land, the people who have walked this land through time, and all those that continue to love and work to honor this place we call home. Welcome back to Folk You Radio, Helen. It is so nice to have you uh, here again with us.
2: Yeah, thanks, Amanda, for inviting me. I'm really looking forward to being here today.
1: Um, Even though I didn't make her tea or bring chocolate, but next time. Okay. (laughs) 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 Cheer that neighbor. See if you say yes, maybe it'll be a really wonderful experience. Okay, so we have a lot of ground to cover today. Um, I thought we would start with just a little bit of a primer for those who don't know or those who have forgotten about who and what Foci is and what your mission is.
2: Okay, um, yeah, so Foci, um, or Friends of Cortez Island, was founded in 1990 by a group of islanders. So I worked out it. it's actually 32 years old, so we've been going quite for quite a long time. And our mission is um, we exist to monitor and preserve the health of local ecosystems and to provide educational programs that foster a greater understanding of the natural environment. So that actually, what that means is we carry out a whole range of interesting projects, everything from maintaining the regional parks. So that's Quas, Carrington, Welltown Commons and um, Siskin Forest Trails, as well as beach accesses. We also monitor the marine environment. We're working on the salmon streams, um, doing uh, stream restoration. Um, We're looking after the lakes and monitoring species at risk. That's just some of the projects we're involved in. The other important part of our work is actually working with the community and engaging the community and educating people about the environment. So in non-COVID times, we've been running a whole range of programmes to get people out from nature walks to... um, nature photography, uh, you know, just getting people out and learning about the natural environment.
1: So it sounds like you must have a staff of at least 100.
2: No, there's <laughs> <laughs> one member of staff, which is me. Um, but we do have um, other people working on contract for us. So we have contractors doing the work in the parks and we work with um, a program coordinators. Some of those are volunteers. Some of them get paid a little ma- amount from time to time. Um, So we work with a bunch of people. So yes, just one employee, but a lot of other people working with us.
1: Wow. You guys do so much. (laughs) Um, Okay, so let's, I would love to hear your take on citizen science and what it means and what it means to you. Because really, I think, you know, your entire organization wouldn't exist, right? If we didn't believe fundamentally in the idea that neighbors can can make meaningful change in the world
2: yeah and so citizen science is all about engaging the public in um carrying out environmental monitoring um or scientific research so it's about what it's really about is having a lot of eyes on the ground so if you think about it there's only going to be a few scientists out there or researchers out there and the reason citizen science kind of got going really was that they realized that by engaging the public there's a lot more people out there. Witnessing a lot of environmental change, or being able to see, um, you know, species, or um, on the ground, or, or, or carry out monitoring work. Um, so it's, it could be any, anything from recording bird populations to um, monitoring water quality in our lakes. And I, I think the, the great thing about it is not just about benefiting science, but it's about benefiting the people who are taking part. So. Anyone can do this. You don't have to be a scientist. Anyone can take part and um, learn a lot more about your local environment, learn a lot more about um, the species and the habitats around you. And, and I think it can be really great fun too. So when we get to talk about some of the projects, you know, they're, they're, they're quite fun to get involved in. So we like to, I like to think it's very, uh, a way of engaging people um, in the environment in a fun and interesting way.
1: Yeah. And when you're talking, particularly when I think about your mission, as you so clearly stated it, it's that combination, right, of, of doing the monitoring, the science and the education. And what I love about the idea of citizen science is that science is just a, a bunch of tools that we can all use as a way of examining the world and making sense of the world around us. And like Wow, what's the point of a tool if we can't all you know <laughs> find our way to use it and 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 we can
2: yeah we we can, and um you know there's lots of a lot of the um monitoring work obviously there's methodologies that have been worked out by scientists and um we you know we can teach that to people um so they're learning about that um and you know a lot of a lot of research is, is about getting out getting your hands dirty you know being out in the field and, and and recording you know different species and um look looking at what's around us and uh you know as i said it's good fun um you learn a lot and you know you can become your own you know become like uh, your own scientist you know you can you're like part of the scientific community so yeah it's really good fun
1: I like that part of the scientific community. So tell us a little bit about the history of foci and, you know, what you feel like are some of the projects or the ways that foci demonstrates the power of the neighbor, the islander, the kind of the individual to influence the environment.
2: Well, for a start, foci was um, founded by a group of islanders who were concerned about um, various environmental issues going on at that time. And... um, has done a whole range of projects over the years. So, one of the early projects was um, there was a campaign against a pulp mill because they were concerned about um, pulp mill pollution polluting shellfish in the nineteen nineties. So that's one of the the reasons Focai got um, kind of got started, I guess. Um, but over the years, it's been involved in everything from supporting the recycling centre, through to um, hosting sustainability fairs. We used to hold fairs where people could learn about how to make their um, properties greener and their houses greener, um, through to all the environmental stewardship programs we carry out today, everything from marine stewardship through to looking after our lakes and streams and um, the parks. Um, and a large part of our work is actually carried out by volunteers, so it's very much about you know, community engagement, community participation. I'll just give you one example of that. A really great example is um, for the Foci Stream Keepers group, So that group involves, I think, around 15 people going out in the fall to monitor the salmon streams. They also do um, a whole bunch of um, practical conservation work. They have done some last year. They were restoring James Creek, bringing in gravel to make um, spawning habitat for the salmon. So, you know, that was just a group of people making a big difference. And through their monitoring work, they've, you know, going a stage further with that particular group They were involved in um, identifying some issues at Basil Creek where there was a culvert under the road. Salmon couldn't get through. And they worked with DFO and Ministry of um, Transport to actually get a whole new bridge put in, so an open-bottom culvert so the the salmon could get through. And that was all through community, you know, through volunteers doing that work. So pretty phenomenal, really. That's just one example of um, some of the volunteers we've got on Cortez.
1: That's... I love that, and it's not even that long ago. We now are all getting to see um, the the daylighting. we call it the daylighting of yeah. of that stream? Um, so, wow, good job. So, let's talk about some of the um, projects that are going on today, or uh, with monitoring, uh, and you know that demonstrate citizen science. Yeah,
2: so we've got a whole bunch of projects, um, citizen science projects. I think. Um, I think I'll just start with our Forage Fish Monitoring Project. So this started up about four years ago. It's a project in partnership with an organisation called Project Watershed, who are based in Courtney. Um, And it's about surveying for spawning beaches of forage fish. Now, forage fish are called forage fish, not because they forage, because other things forage on them. They're actually at the bottom of the food chain. And so a lot of other species depend on them, everything from marbled murrelets through to um, Chinook salmon through to humpback whales. So they're a really important part of the food web. So if you imagine that they disappeared completely, then a lot of other there'd be a lot of apps, uh, sort of like a collapse in the marine environment. So they're really important. So what we've been doing um, is looking at um, the beaches to see if we can find spawning habitats. So what the forage, the, the fish, the, what the one of the... Fish were particularly interested in the Pacific sand lance. And what it does, it buries into the sand to lay its eggs and the eggs that get attached to the sand um, to hold them in place, really. And so what the volunteers do, they go out and take sand samples from the beach and then filter those samples down to get to the finest um, sort of sand grains, which will have these eggs. And then we take the samples back to um, the eco lab, which is at the um, Cortez World exhibit, Um, at Linnea and look for the eggs under the microscope so we literally try to find the eggs and what we found from that is that um, one of the hot spots actually in the Salish Sea is Manson Spit It's actually really good for a really important spawning beach for um, forage fish so that data has all gone back to Project Watershed it's held in a a data center called the Strait of Georgia Data Center and um, The purpose of collecting that data is to try and understand up and down the Salish Sea. It's part of a bigger programme looking up and down the Salish Sea. Where are these spawning beaches? And what can we learn from the beaches where spawning is taking place? And can they actually predict where spawning might be happening elsewhere so they can start looking more strategically at protecting these beaches? And one of the uh, partners in the project that sort of helped initiate the project is the World Wildlife Fund. And now they're looking at um, a shoreline, trying to encourage the um, province to have a shoreline protection act to protect these beaches. But that data is also really important um, because if any developer comes along and wants to, um, you know, build near the beaches or, um, you know, put up seawalls, that can really badly affect those beaches. So it's like, okay, there's little flags in the ground all over the place. saying, hey, these beaches are important. Please, you know, don't develop them. How do we protect them? Because if we don't. You know, there's a massive impact on the marine environment if we lose those
1: beaches. Um, That's an amazing way to think about something so small, having the potential to uh, impact something so large.
2: Yeah, so somebody standing on Manson Spit taking their sand sample, you can just see, see the sort of chain going back up. To how you know there's a, there's a really important thing that they're doing so even if they might be freezing cold which i've done that one your hands are so cold you can hardly move you know it's really important work so it's a really good motivator
1: yeah well there was probably wonderful hot chocolate in it too yeah, Of course so. wasn't. yes of course absolutely <laughs> just and like, everything. just yes. like helen's being fed uh, tea and, and chocolate right yeah, so now. that's a
2: really good um that's one of our projects and um, maybe i could mention a couple of others um Another one we've been um, working on since 2014 is our lake um, monitoring project. We've got a project we call Love the Lakes. It's about looking after the lakes. And in 2014, there was a really significant algal bloom on the lakes, which caused a lot of concern in the local community. And from that, we started a a monitoring programme on the lakes, which means we go out every single month of the year. And um, we've been measuring the water quality in the lakes and taking um, the, the temperature of the lakes, looking at how kind of cloudy the lakes are you know are there algal blooms going on and um what that's done is we've got a whole bunch of data that we've had um a limnologist, somebody who knows about lakes looking at and uh, uh who's been gu- guiding us in you know what we should do about it um the lakes are pretty healthy but there's a ongoing kind of concern about them becoming more nutrient rich if they become norm- more nutrient rich you get more algal blooms and that can cause things like fish die-off. So, um, you know, we're we're monitoring the lakes. Um, um, again, that that project has led to some some good coming out. We we were trying to work out, okay, what do we do? How do we make these lakes better? We actually managed with the evidence collected by those volunteers, um, that evidence was used to apply for a grant, a feasibility study to look at what's called bioremediation. Now, bioremediation means using plants to take up nutrients. So we were very lucky to get that grant and we carried out the feasibility study and what that told us was one of the best things we could do was actually to do some wetland restoration around the lakes which has led to a wetland restoration project at Linnea um, which happened last summer, it's very exciting and we're hoping what the wetland does it, it diverts part of the um, stream, uh, Dillon Creek, um, into the wetland the water flows through the wetland the plants take up any nutrients and um, and then when it comes out the other end, you know, the water should be cleaner and going into the lake. So that's you know, another great example of us, you know, monitoring uh, an ecosystem and that monitoring leading to positive change on the ground. that evidence base led us to, you know, we had to apply to we applied to um, the government um, environmental grant with um, the, the government of Canada. So we had to be really quite scientific and say, hey, is, look at this, the, you know, there's some evidence here we want this money to do this work and, you know, we got the money and it's been a great project.
1: I just, I wanted to put a couple shouts out for that project. One, we uh, we did a Folk you episode uh, with Miranda about the lakes. I think it was the Love the Lake episode and Miranda talked a little bit more about Dylan Creek uh, in that episode and we should have her back now that things are further along. But also I've been parts of a couple different school groups who've gone out and because of that wetland project i mean it is really kind of citizen science and you know made physical because you can go out and see the work that wetlands are doing and see how these ecosystems are are working and feeding each other and doing this important work so that's also really special right when you have the an educate you know something that is doing something
2: there's a whole range of benefits coming out of that project not just trying to um improve the water quality in the lakes you know it's wetland habitats are you know, wetlands have just dis- disappeared everywhere they've been drained obviously people drain them for agriculture hence you know there was a wetland at linea became a farm you know that, that kind of thing and and so um wetland habitats important for a whole host of wildlife species so you know we've actually got mo- another monitoring program going on looking at what's coming into the wetlands you know we've already seen great blue herons coming in you know, got cutthroat trout, um, you know, so it's a really wonderful wildlife habitat. And another benefit is that we can now take kids out there, the local community out there, and they can learn about wetlands. And, you know, there's a, a group going out, I think, next week, they're going to be looking for um, aquatic invertebrates, like like a treasure hunt for kids, looking at, you know, are we going to find dam- damselfly larvae or, you know... Um, or whatever's in the in in the the wetlands. So, yeah, great project. Um, so many benefits. And again, started from a, a volunteer program. Volunteers are still involved. So, yeah, really good good project. That one. Love it. One more I'd like to mention, um, which we uh we did in partnership with Hakai, who are coming on later on in the program, was a sea star um or starfish monitoring program. Um, they uh, have been uh, getting off the ground last year and they wanted to do a citizen science element of the th- they're doing it with their own scientists and again I think it was around 2013 you know had the starfish um, uh, sea style uh, wasting disease or syndrome where a huge number of starfish died a- out up and down the coast right from California up to Alaska really shocking so those lovely common species that we used to see you know the purple starfish where everyone just thinks oh they're so common you know they're just fine suddenly started disappearing, and what this program's looking at is um trying to see if they're recovering um, and so what the what it involved was getting volunteers going out on the beaches in the low tides last summer to look for starfish and see how they're doing looking to see if they saw healthy ones or looking to see if they saw um ones with the um wasting syndrome you know where they 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 just look like they've melted basically. So um, that's really important research. And, you know, I was sort of dig, getting ready for this interview. thought, OK, let me find a bit more about this. And it's kind of shocking what's happened, you know, in, in the south where it's warmer. You know, they think part of the, the disease is um, so prevalent because the waters are warmed up because of climate change, especially down in California. That's, you know, it's warmer down there. And so they've, they've not had so much sea star recovery. But they do know that, you know, they're, they're sort of, coming back here but certain species like um, sun stars have pretty much got wiped out by that disease and have hardly recovered and they're now becoming they're now becoming um, considered a species at risk so you know that that's kind of interesting what's going on and again citizen science is really valuable so last year you know we were out um, monitoring for sea stars and interestingly on one of the low tides that was when the heat, heat dome happened so Again, just a slight kind of aside from the the starfish people you know some of our surveyors were out there saying they saw these crabs which had started climbing up the rocks and actually just baked on the rocks, so they were witnessing like climate change in action and and that information got fed back to um the scientists, so you know they suddenly started realizing that billions of um shellfish had died off, you know barnacles had died off, but actually having those citizen scientists out there witnessing that was was really valuable.
1: We got trained up last year on doing the sea star monitoring and participated, and um, and it seemed like last year. And I'm wondering if you have any of the data that came in, um, where it, that there was a lot of um, uh, kind of return to health or or, or areas that on Cortez seem like the sea stars were doing pretty good or the starfish i'm not sure what we're supposed to call them i feel like this is one of those I'm terms that, sure. I I be, that i might too. not be I, <laughs> I feel like it's one of those things where we're not getting it quite right um i mean and <laughs> what's in what's what's in right now so uh, let's say sea stars sea stars. Um,
2: sea stars star, star, okay because star, okay, yeah, they're not star. fish
1: that's what i thought uh, yeah. okay so um but where we were there was still a fair amount of wasting um on our particular beach and then we also got trained up in for our monitoring um, last year and we were probably really lucky to get out and do that before the heat dome and ever since I've been you know we haven't gone out yet this year but um, you know I think at the time uh, Sabina said that you know, the data had stay. they had data for like 25 years in a lot of these areas. And, um, and things have been looking pretty good. Um, and she talked about the species in those intertidal areas being just some of the most robust species in the world. So then, you know, living on that beach, having done the monitoring, which is, is pretty intense, like how you go about getting data on this exact one spot in, uh, in, a, in an intertidal zone. Um, And then looking at that area, not yet, and doing it as like a citizen scientist, just looking at it and the huge die off that happened last year. I'm really curious what we're going to see this year.
2: Yeah, and I think this just shows the valuable value of um, environmental monitoring. And like you mentioned, that um, data collection that um, Sabina Lida Menz started um, 25 years ago is super valuable you know it provides baseline data that we can then compare against so the fact that that's been going on on Cortez these 12 like you mentioned 12 monitoring points around the island where on the lowest tides of the year in the summer we go out we put down a a line it's called a transect from the low tide um, mark up the beach and then we put what's called quadrats like these squares you can look in to see what's in each square as you go up the the beach so th- we've got a ton of data and um that data went to... It was sitting in our office for some time. And I remember when I first started at Folk, I think, God, if the office burnt down, we're going to lose all this data. Um, and luckily, a year ago, we got it put into the um, Strait of Georgia Data Centre. So that data is held there. So we're hoping that that data is available for anyone to look at and, and scientists to look at. And yes, it'd be really interesting to see next year what what we're finding and comparing it to the year before last. You know, we've had the year before last, we had the heat dome, and then, you know, this this summer, what what's the impact? You know, has what what are the changes? And going forwards, you know, if, you know we're going to get another heat dome this summer, you know, so that that monitoring is really important. And I think I just want to sometimes reflect on where we are as Cortez, as this remote island. We're on a remote island, and we going north of us, all these little islands with very very few people living on them. So, us being here and collecting this data is, is really valuable to the scientists.
1: So, can we talk a little bit more about that—that um, that idea of almost like being a broker, or, or what, you know, th- you know, it's great to have citizens out there doing monitoring and doing um, um, this science work, but, but, you know, it has to go somewhere. Someone has to think it's important, right? Beyond just us. Yes. So.
2: Yes, and uh, I feel really passionate about that. I feel it's really important. We shouldn't just collect things for the sake of collecting things we should be um monitoring for a purpose and what we've increasingly tried to do is work with other organizations like Hakai, who are you know the data the sea star data is going back to the scientists at Hakai to look at and analyze and compare to other areas you know our project with forage fish is going back to project watershed and then you know they're sharing it with other partners up and down the salish sea so as far as possible now with foci i'm tr- we're trying to partner with organizations so you know the it's going somewhere that data is going somewhere and being used and like i've said you know like the lake data it was used to get a grant to make a difference on the ground so i feel really strongly about that i feel like um you know we 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 need to look at how we're monitoring what we're monitoring and and it has to have a purpose and go somewhere the more it goes somewhere the, the better and more valuable it is
1: and I guess there's this idea of data itself as a tool, um, right? If we, if we do manage to connect up with larger uh, science-based organizations or hopefully also government organizations who want this stuff to use it for conservation or for um, you know, creating smarter policies and better government. Um, I want to believe that that's possible. Um, <laughs> um, so, but then there's also all the tools that Foci has started collecting that are like physical things. So one of them we already mentioned a little bit is the Wild Cortez in the lab there. Can you talk a little bit about that um, space and the tools that are part of it and some of the other tools that you actually have to make the citizen science Yeah, so work?
2: yeah, the EcoLab is part of um, Wild Cortez or Cortez Wild, I never get that right way around. One, one of those two things, I think it's Wild Cortez, um, and which is the uh, museum's natural history exhibit that's at Linnea. So right next to the exhibit is a space that got turned into the Ecolab a few years ago, and that's got some microscopes in it. So like I said, we use it when we collect the sand samples to look at the um, Pacific sand lance eggs. Um, so that's a great resource for us. So it's like we've got our own little eco lab, and you know, we're hoping we can use that more and more as we get involved in different programs. Um, in terms of tools, we also—I uh, guess I'm just thinking of uh, sort of the, the 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 equipment that we have. You know, we. Um, so uh, let me try and think about this. Yeah. So again, let's go to, let, let's think about this. A forage fish, for example, we have um, we have. Uh, a whole bunch of tools for that like a, we actually have a centrifuge which um, we use to filter our samples we have um you know we, we provide tape great big long tape measures to measure um where we're taking samples off the beach uh the foreshore monitoring we have the quadrats again and the transects so we have all those tools and we also have um data sheets that are consistent with other surveys being carried out out Up and down the coast. So when we collect our data, they collect it, the data is collected in a certain way, so that data can then go back to scientists. And they we're collecting what they want. We're not just writing down hey, it's like whatever. It's like we're we're writing it down in a scientific way. We're re- recording the weather. We're recording the temperature. Um, and so you know, it's like a we are being scientists and collecting that data in a you know a way that is meaningful to the researchers who are looking at what what we're collecting.
1: And I guess the other volunteers are also tools in some ways, Um, you know, like, you know, anyone who's had an afternoon to spend with Sabina or Mike Moore or someone, it's like, oh, the amount that you're learning, um, you know, Sabina is an incredible scientist and to be able to, you know, through foci have a chance to learn from someone like that, how to do monitoring is pretty special.
2: Yeah, and I think yeah, it's it, it is pretty special, and it's making people more aware about their local environment, and and people might spot you know maybe spotting stuff but we're not spotting outside of our actual formal programs, which are is is valuable information, and I I like to think of you know humans as like we're our own data loggers, we're 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 witnessing change over this over time, and you now we're we're just getting in a, involved in a project now to monitor Dungeness crab and Mike Moore has volunteered to um, spearhead that programme for us. And I, I saw some email correspondence between him and Hakai, who are organising it, and he said, hey, I've been diving in the around Cortez for 30 years and I've noticed that, you know, the Dungeness crab has... the populations have really gone down. So he's just himself witnessed that and that's useful um, information for people. You know, not everyone's diving down, looking at, you know, noticing those things. So we, we are ourselves you know um, a, a, a resource we we witness change you know common species disappear like in, you know you can hear my accent coming I come from the UK we used to have I know they're not so popular here but house sparrows in the UK used to be abundant you used to sit down at a cafe and you'd have house sparrows you know feeding at your feet and suddenly they started disappearing, and people noticed that. Like, hey, they, you know, sit down, there's no house barrows. And their population crashed, and, that, you know, this common species suddenly disappeared. But people were witnessing that, and they had stories about that. And, you know, that, that's really valuable information, too.
1: Well, and we didn't even talk about uh, – we didn't even begin to talk about all the programs that foci has. And, you know, I only know some of these because of other times on the radio and stuff like Species at Risk – um, and that is those are also tools, really, for 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 citizens. So yes, yeah,
2: so I guess so. I mean, I was I'm trying to when you said tools, I was really having to think a little bit about that. Um, yeah, we another program we have got is our species at risk program. So on our website, we've got a uh, information about um, some of the species at risk that occur on or around Cortez. So everything from um, Oh, let me think. Uh, harbour porpoises, through to great, um, great blue herons. You know, they're they're species at risk, and we want to hear about them. And not only do we want to hear about them, but you know, we're working with. Um, there's, for example, there's a cetaceans sighting network, which is whales and dolphins. Uh, they're an organisation based down in Vancouver, and they want to record any sightings of humpback whales around the island, or, or, or killer whales, or you know, harbour porpoises. So. You know, we have links into from our website into their websites where you can literally say, hey, you know, I've done it lots of times. Hey, what's a humpback Well, It was off, you know, Hernando. It was on the, at this time. And that helps them track. And if you've got a photograph, it's obviously more valuable, but that helps them track what's going on with humpback whales. Again, people, you know, just out on the beach seeing those things and just thinking a bit, you know, hey, that that's a really valuable sighting. Let's go on and, um, you know, log that information with uh, the relevant place
1: it's I just feel like we need to take a deep breath about how much you're actually (laughs) making you know happen and um, and then the different ways that we way out here floating you know on a tiny little island (laughs) in this big ocean actually get to participate in something bigger Um, I'm wondering from your perspective what you are also seeing that is not happening and the um the kind of you know with all these resources and all this monitoring that's happening the ways where we are still not able to plug in um you know our skills or whatever to something you know to bigger conservation or bigger knowledge banks
2: yeah i think you know my my background i've, I've come from a background in the uk of um sort of strategic conservation planning and um Worked in local government, you know, did a lot of policy work, and coming, I'm coming into Canada, and I'm like, okay, how does it work here? And I think, um, you know, just being on an, you know, an island-based community, um, that we should be looking more strategically at what we're doing. We should be looking at this island and, and, you know, doing some conservation planning, some landscape-scale conservation planning. Hey, what do we have here? What's important? You know. Um, what should we be doing about it and be a bit more strategic we are doing these projects and we have picked up a lot of the important stuff but um, you know we should be looking at you know where are the wildlife corridors on this island how do we make sure they're going to be there in 10 15 50 years time you know what's cortez going to look like in 50 years time so perhaps doing a bit more sort of higher level thinking about you know how do we protect this island again when i got into looking at I was thinking about the forage fish project and just trying to work that back and like, okay, how are they protected and how is the marine environment protected? And I discovered that we you know in terms of marine planning, there's a big marine plan to the north of us and there's a big marine plan to the south of Hornby. Between Hornby and Cortez, there's no big marine plan. So like, okay, so you know how's everything protected in the marine environment? And I didn't have enough time to dig down, but it wasn't very easy to find out. Um, and I know um, various organisations have been trying to pressure the provincial government to look at a more strategic uh, way of looking at the whole of the Salish Sea. Though. So that's not just us on an island look at our little island. But it's like, how does that fit in with everything else and how are we thinking, looking at the bigger picture all the time? And, and thinking forward, you know, what what's it going to be like here in 100 years' time? Can we do anything now that's really going to preserve things how do we are we going to be able to keep our wolf population on the island you know questions like that we're perhaps looking at the bigger picture stuff that's that's something I've always been interested in and you know it's like it throws up a lot of questions when you start looking at that
1: it, it also I mean I feel like it can very quickly for me start to feel overwhelming when I think about you know, 100 years or the big, you know, all that needs to be protected and all that we could be doing and aren't. And I really like this idea, though, that we're kind of slowly, steadily collecting data, um, teaching each other the tools that we're going to need to be the, you know, to be the the scientists of and the stewards of this area into the future and to help influence, hopefully, um, as we create Way, you know plans for protection and stuff like that that they come out of truly the observations and the needs and the understanding from local people that feels really beautiful and empowering so um yeah so thanks for for you know creating your part of that
2: yeah uh, yeah and that's you know that's me going up a a, a lot, long way up from <laughs> you know standing on the beach monitoring um uh, for forage fish but um <laughs> you know i th- i think it's worth thinking like that a bit about you know what is the future um you know when you go if you went back 200 years you know there'd be a way bigger abundance of species on this planet and in this area and what we're probably looking at is a, a semblance of what was there before and i'd hate to think in 100 years we're just looking at a fraction of what we've got now so how do we stop that from happening how do we make, make things better not not worse
1: yeah how do we
2: so what's next for foci goodness um what's next for foci well carrying on as normal you know we've got a lot of (laughs) a lot of programs um that we're we're working on you know our lake program continuing um to make sure the wetland at lanaire you know we're doing a little bit more sort of restoration work there we've just launched a new project on um, western screech Isles, so uh, that's an exciting new project that's just started Um, we're also hoping um, you know we've had COVID going on for the last couple of years really curious now what this summer's going to look like and whether we can actually start doing some more programming getting people out doing some nature hikes just that would be really interesting to see what happens with COVID and what we can do next so I, I hope we can start running more sort of summer events programs again and yeah, we've just got a new board at Foci, so we're having a big strategic planning day coming up soon, and we'll see what um, you know that, that brings. So there might be some new projects coming out of that.
1: And, I mean, I would also like to say that, while there might not have been as many summer activities um, with Foci, there have been some over the last couple of years, and you guys have just... Like, you know, scientists never sleep, you know, and citizen scientists really never sleep. (laughs) The less they're paid, the more they do. Um, And so, you know, there's been so much that you guys have been busy doing um, through this time, all this data collection. Um, training up new volunteers. It seems like there, with many organizations, including yours, there was there's been some turnover in you know who who's going to take on these monitoring projects. So, um, one, I would like to just sort of say thank you for all of that and make sure that people don't forget. And you know there was just a big um, you know moss laboratory thing that the museum was doing at Wild Cortez using some of the EcoLab. Tools, so um, you know things really I feel like have been trucking along, and I think more and more people and and some younger people and stuff want to get involved, want to learn more. Where is the first place you would sort of send them, and where are you looking and hoping to get more people involved in the near term?
2: Um, well, we always anyone who wants to come and volunteer with us, you know, there is a lot of opportunities for volunteering. We've just described some of the citizens' science projects. You know, we've got a a broom bash coming up at Manson Spit in a couple of weeks' time, Um, and you know, there's a whole bunch of ways people can volunteer. It doesn't necessarily have to be out in in the field. We could do with people helping us, um, you know, uh, do promotional work, do some fundraising for us. Um, You know, there's a whole bunch of things that people can get involved in, and we'd just love to have more people taking part so you know if you want to get involved just get in touch with us you can email us at friendsofcortez at gmail.com or phone us on 0087 and um you know we'd love to hear from you and and i think the other thing to say is you know we do have our species at risk program so if you're out there and you're seeing something interesting um get in touch and let us know what you're seeing so you know we'd love to hear from you
1: and is there, I, I feel like we, uh, I, I rushed you through so many things, and um, and I know there's, <laughs> and I didn't provide coffee what? or tea or I'm chocolates. Still <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> if you wait long enough, it will oh, happen. Okay. <laughs> um, anything else that you want to mention or just talk about things that you've seen changing? Um, and or happening um, through your different projects and different ways of being involved?
2: Oh, gosh. Uh, hmm. I think, I uh, know no, I mean, another, I think one direction folk I would like to go in more is actually enabling people to do their own thing where they live. Uh, it's, it's something that's been bubbling up for us for a while. We just haven't, haven't had the capacity to kind of and move it forward at the moment, but we had this idea of sort of community stewards, so looking after your own land and your own property, and that could be anything from putting up a, a birdhouse, it could be that you're planting nectar-rich species for bees and butterflies, um, thinking about um, you know what you're putting on your property, you know, especially if you're living around the lake, not using inorganic fertilisers which can actually pollute the lakes. Um, And really thinking carefully about your property there's a lot of you know people have quite big properties here and you know you're you're stewards of the land too it's not I don't think it should ever think it's just hey friends of Cortez you need to look after the environment everyone can be looking after the environment in their own way however they do that so I think just something we'd like to do is enable other people to to look after you know where they live um to get more involved in some of our programs like you know we're trying to organize a beach cleanup hopefully in april so you know come out and join join us with that so yeah um you know we've got one little island It's, it's it's such a valuable precious wonderful place and i think a lot of people are here for that reason and just really thinking about your own impacts and um what you can do to to help you know that's a great way forward i think
1: Yeah, and I think it's one of the reasons a lot of us chose to be here is that sense that people, you know, I don't know, I could be over romanticizing it, but I feel like people on the islands, we do feel more um, responsible for ourselves and for our footprint and for how we live. And, and it's nice, right? It's nice to be around people who are sort of you know, learning and, and sharing and taking responsibility for their, for their own little world. And it's really nice also to be able to come together and feel like you're part of a community that, um, you know, that is larger than you. And so I really like that idea that I, I forget exactly how you said it, but the community, you know, being part a citizen scientist, part of a community of scientists, um, and information being able to be shared and used for empowerment in that way. So, yeah, that's really inspiring. I needed some inspiration. <laughs> Perfect for the spring. Thank you. Yes, sir. I think now
2: the spring's coming. We're all kind of, you know, feeling like we're waking up and, and wanting to do things. So, yeah, it's a good time of year to get 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 involved in stuff.
1: Yeah, we're all like, yeah, the environment, that's good, instead of the environment.
2: <laughs> yeah, and I think, I think you know, yeah, I've been working in the environmental field for a long time and you know you you don't want it to be all doom and gloom we don't want to say everything's going wrong and it's not you know there's there's great stuff happening the, you know people are so much more knowledgeable now um about impacts and what we can do about it and i think a lot of people really care about in the environment and you know you can have fun too you know you can go out and enjoy being you know kayaking or whatever it is just enjoying being in the environment and we've done a whole series of programs a couple i think it was two years ago on you know how good nature is for you and how important it is to get out in nature and you know all the multiple health benefits so we're in such a fortunate position living in such a stunning place it's good for us
1: I feel like people, should, I want to go back and listen to some of those shows now. They might be a little rough because that was right at the very beginning of going on the radio, but the Nature is Good for You series, that was wonderful. We had gonna come on and do a guided um, nature walk. We had the Dawn Chorus one. Um, we had the whole one about the ways that nature is good for your for your mental health your physical health yeah that's a that was a good series go back and listen folks it was it's (laughs) it's
2: still on our website it's still on our website you could listen to those programs yeah there was a fantastic one by cory doing the dawn chorus i mean she 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 was great you know and again sober forest therapy walks you know it, it all makes so much sense just being out in nature how good it is
1: for us and if you don't know what a Twitcher is, you can go and learn if you uh, do the Dawn Chorus one. So go go and find out what a Twitcher is. Um, thank you so much, Helen. Uh, remind everybody of your website. Our website, oh goodness, it's www- <laughs>
2: www.friendsofcortez.org. Yeah, so yeah, there's lots of great information there. And, you know, if you want to get involved, we'd love to hear from you.
1: Um, and also there's ways to just report species that you've seen um, et, cetera, et cetera. everyone's voice uh, and observations can, can matter thank you so much we're going to just have a little bit of music I'm hoping um, we're going to hear from Mike Moore to talk a little bit more about the Dungeness crab stuff and any other neighbors I had a couple of people call in with some of the things that they've been doing um, or noticing as citizen scientists over the years there's lots of you who are regularly thinking about observing um, and being part of the eyes on our natural world. So we'd love to hear from you, 250-935-0200. And then uh, after that, we will have uh, Kelly Fretwell from Eye Institute come on to talk about even more tools for citizen science. Thanks for tuning in to Vogue Radio here on CKTZ. FM. We're going to have a little bit of music for a few minutes.
3: Where are you now? Are you in some hotel room? Does it have a view? Are you caught in a crowd? Or holding some honey who came on? Lives. Though it's undermined I'd still like to see you sometime I'm feeling so good And my friends will tell me that I'm looking fine I run in the woods I spring from the boulders like I'm just like to see you sometime Like your suspenders I'll come meet your plane No need to surrender heartlessly I couldn't take them all on the end with a head full of questions and hypes so in the hopes got so slim i just resigned but I'd still like
1: You're listening to Folk U Radio here on CKTZ 89.5, Cortez Community Radio. And we have an emergency announcement, which is that the ferry between Cortez and Quadra is down. It is not operating because of a problem with the hall. The I, I know that the 1150 was canceled. The 150 is canceled, um, both leaving Cortez and returning from Kwathiaski Cove. Is that what it? No, from Harriet Bay. Um, back to, uh, to Cortez. They're both canceled. Um, and I guess we're standing by to hear whether there's the 350 will run the 305 out of Harriet Bay. And there is a water taxi that has been deployed to run between to run um, what, foot passengers between Cortez and Quadra. Oh, between Cortez and Quadra? Probably. Now that I said that, I don't actually know whether it's going to be between Cortez and Quadra or whether they'll take you straight to Campbell River. Whoa, this could be a fantastic opportunity to get a very quick ride to Campbell River. So, um, But I'm I'm sure I'm not supposed to be saying that as part of my emergency announcement. The ferries are down. Um, We'll keep you posted here on Fuck You Radio, CKTZ 89.5 FM. And we are lucky to have now Michael Moore joining us who is leading a foci-hack-eye combined effort around Dungeness crab monitoring. Hi, Mike.
4: Hi, Amanda. Nice to be here again.
1: Nice to have you. It feels like it's been a while.
4: Yeah, I was just in the neighborhood. Thought we'd just check in with the neighbors.
1: The way it really went is that I s- actually saw him out the window and then I started screaming and made him come in. So, you know, be careful where you walk <laughs> when folk radio is happening. Um, so tell us a little bit more about the the project that you're helping with, um, this little bit of citizen science. And um, and tell us what you have observed, like why this is important, um, Dungeness Crab Monitoring. And You have had your eyes on the Dungeness crab as well as many other species for more than 25 years. Um, So tell us what you've been seeing.
4: How much time do I have?
1: Well, you've got a solid 10 to 15 minutes.
4: Okay, thank you. Okay, well, um, back in the early 2000s when I was diving to uh, maintain the moorings around Hernando Island, As I was dragging chains across the sand sand bottoms of Hernando, the Dungeness crabs would literally be exploding out of the sand and running away. And in May and June, as you walked up the uh, Hernando dock and looked down into the eelgrass beds there on the sand flats of Stag Bay, you would see just hundreds of Dungeness crabs in the shallows mating. And that was how it was. Uh, I recently started diving down on Hernando Island again uh, just in the last five or six years and was really shocked. I could dive all season and not see a single Dungeness crab. Not only that, but um, the octopus dens that I was finding and, by the way, some of the mooring blocks we put down... um, have holes in them for the chain to run through and the octopus are denning in those holes so i see quite a few octopus in the area and there is no or very little crab litter in front of their dens mostly i'm seeing clams i'm seeing moon snails and that sort of thing but very few uh, crab shell litter so that caused me quite a bit of concern Um, something definitely has shifted in the ecosystem. I was talking to one of the caretakers about five years ago on Hernando. Actually, Hernando Island uh, shareholders had me down to dive because they had seen a crab boat laying gear between Stag Bay and Spillsbury Point on the north side of Hernando. And they wanted me to go look for that gear because it was unmarked. So the crab fishermen had just Deployed the gear without any floats coming to the surface, which is illegal, um, and would come back later and grapple for the crab traps. Um, but the gear has to be marked, and they figured if I could find that gear, um, then they could uh, charge the fishermen. Have Department of Fisheries and Oceans charge the fishermen. Unfortunately, at that time, I was not able to find that string of gear. Um, The fishermen had probably already come in to collect it. uh, But I was actually quite amazed to see how many strings of gear that I found down on the sand flats, down even as deep as 100 feet, um, all strung together but lost. And the crab traps were half buried in the sand they were no longer fishing so it wasn't like a ghost gear situation where gear continues to fish and kill um, animals even though nobody's there to collect it but uh yep in the last 20 years a tremendous amount of fishing gear has gone into the area around there and taken a lot of our crabs so i understand from reading another problem with dungeness crabs is they are having a hard time in their juvenile stages and their larval stages of creating shell because of the acidification of the ocean waters in the Salish Sea. And Dungeness crabs are one of the species of note that really are affected by that. And so there's several things that are going on with the Dungeness crabs. Uh, Hackeye, the Hackeye Institute is very interested in this. Uh, they want to get a handle on what's going on. And so they have started to deploy what are known as light traps in the area. So these traps, of which we're going to get one on Cortez Island, and I'm hoping to deploy it off of Cortez Bay. Uh, These traps are about 35 centimeters in diameter. They go a meter deep, and they float at the surface, but they hang down into the water column. They have battery-operated lights that illuminate the water column, and larvae, planktonic uh, creatures, um, are attracted to the lights, and they'll swim towards it, and they'll get trapped by in this in this trap and it's a live trap so they just get held in there under the lights and then every two days normally uh, the trap keeper will come and pull it up onto the dock and as far as i understand we're going to get trained on how to identify the plankton the zooplankton and larval forms that we uh, catch and we're going to count those And we're really looking for Dungeness crabs. I'm also very excited to look for red rock crabs as well, because I don't have uh, a very deep um, uh, observation of red rock crabs, but. I have not seen very many lately and uh, I'm looking forward to getting back in the water this spring and really looking around and keeping my eyes open on these red rock crabs. Unfortunately, all the diving I do...
1: I just have to interrupt you for one second. We're not gonna, we're not done. We're not done. But I have to tell you, you're listening to Folk U Radio on CKTZ 89.5 FM because we do that at the top of the hour. And we have Michael Morrow right this moment. We're talking about tools for citizen science. And right now, he's telling us a little bit more about a Dungeness crab and perhaps other crab monitoring project that is going to be happening on Cortez uh, that he is going to be helping with as a citizen scientist. Will you tell us more?
4: Yes, I will, Amanda. Uh, just to clarify, though, that this is a Dungeness crab monitoring study. You know, the red rock crab is my own interest. Uh, I know that we'll be seeing a lot of different larval forms come up in these traps, and it'd be really fun to learn how to identify them, because often the larval forms look very much different than the adults. Um oh, I just lost my train of thought. Where was I going? That's uh, what
1: happens when people interrupt you. I know. But, uh, but uh, well... Y- One you of have- the
4: things that I'm really excited too about this is that it's going to be in... Uh, this trap hopefully will be deployed in, in Cortez Bay um, off of a private dock, but it would be really fun to get kids to have a look at this um, and uh, learn something about that. So, and in fact... Uh, Yeah, we have to um, pull this trap every two days, as I mentioned, normally. And in hot weather, uh, apparently we have to pull this trap every day to have a look so that the critters don't cook inside the trap while we're waiting to count them.
1: And so I want to... No, maybe you know these answers maybe you don't is this the beginning of um of this monitoring project or have there been monitoring efforts in other places um around uh you know around Cortez just not on Cortez
4: I don't know how long the program has been going for I do know that there are other locations that have been set up and I suspect that they were working at least last year, but I don't know for sure. I'm sorry.
1: That's okay. And do we know um, what this monitoring is going into, what they're hoping to do with this monitoring, and um, and how broadly they are currently monitoring?
4: Well, I don't know how broadly. They are definitely got um, sites I remember seeing as far south as Denman. I'm sorry, I, I, I looked at a map, but I was really more interested in what was happening in our local area. Um, and what are they trying to do? They're just trying to get a, uh, a handle on what is affecting the crab populations. And, and if, for instance, if there is enough crabs to produce spawn and larval forms, and we find lots of larval forms, but... There's no, there isn't anything coming from that. Then that could mean that it's acidification. This is just my guessing because I'm not a scientist, but I'm happy to be an input into science. But my guessing is that if 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 we don't get adults, then that could be due to uh, acidification or some other problem. If we're not finding very many larvae, then that's a problem with reproduction interestingly i was in campbell river yesterday and i dropped by crabby bobs and his tanks were absolutely full of beautiful big dungeness crabs now no fisherman or fishmonger is actually going to tell you where they got the things but i says geez those can't be from around here oh yeah no they're all from the local waters he says and uh i know that these waters can be very productive um, I've also worked a lot out of Sydney, just outside of Victoria, and the number of crab boats that go out every day out of Sydney and work Sydney Harbour, uh, Sydney Island and all the sand um, spits and reefs off of the Saanich Peninsula on the uh, east side of the Saanich Peninsula. It's incredible. Some places you can hardly drive your boat because of the number of crab traps. I just can't believe it. Anything can survive down there, but they're still making a living. So given the chance, I'm sure um, if it's not a chemistry and acidification problem or some other biological problem, these populations can bounce back. But we need to have data in order to set regulation.
1: And are there, I mean, just with your years of experience of observing under the ocean, um, you know, if you could wave a magic wand and have us monitoring other species, what would you choose?
4: Oh, that's a fantastic question. Um, well, so much more could be done with uh, with uh, Pycnopodia, the sunflower star, top apex predator of, of the uh, benthic area and the um, low subtidal area. That the loss of that due to sea star wasting syndrome has changed ecosystems quite a bit. Um, We don't even know how yet. You know, we're just seeing things develop as as uh, as time goes on. They're all terribly complex um, equations to try to work out. For instance, that sunflower star, Pycnopodia helianthoides, can I've seen them digging for clams in. 120 feet of water but i'm sure most of our listeners remember looking down the pilings or on the sand bottom from manson's um dock and seeing them up to about what was it 10 years ago where these things started to disappear and uh yeah what have we seen in the interim from that i think um uh, moon snail populations have gone up Uh, i've certainly and this is all and and anecdotal 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 yeah um this because it's all just my observations i don't have a notepad i'm not taking notes and and things like that maybe i should be but usually my hands are full uh doing what i'm doing which is usually working underwater but uh yeah i've seen a marked increase of of abalone and other creatures that would have been the sea star the sunflower stars uh prey
1: um, yeah, that's interesting. and then, and what and then, you know that makes it seem like, oh, it'd be a good thing, but I'm sure there's also some major downsides of losing a predator species. What would those perhaps be?
4: Oh, the downside is that uh, and 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 this holds true for um, apex predators in any ecosystem. If you take out the top predator, then the next level uh, booms, and will deplete its feed source or um, over-reproduce to a point where diseases can, can uh, take hold. Um, the top predators, they take out the weak and um, so keep the population strong. And like I say, this is all really complicated um, biology and uh a lot of it is just wait and see what happens, I guess. I'm I'm, I'm sure there's scientists that are making predictions on how things are going to turn out um, without these. And, you know, I I think that's a pretty common uh, idea that, oh, if we take out the predators, then everything else is going to do so much better, you know. Let's kill the wolves. Let's kill the sharks. Let's kill all these things. But what we're finding, in fact, is we make an extremely unhealthy environment by doing that
1: i always enjoy having you on maybe we're gonna have to set a date for a a a whole michael moore focused uh, naturalist uh, folk you i I see you kind of cringing but (laughs) but it's always fun once you say yes
4: (laughs) well thanks for for having me on again manda i'm glad that this worked out spontaneity spontaneously and uh yeah Always well, it's, a pleasure to talk
1: to you. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for taking on this uh, Dungeness Crab Monitoring Project and for your work, because um, I believe you're also a new board member with FOCI. Um, so we're, we're extra thrilled uh, about that. So thank you.
4: Okay, thank you, Amanda.
1: And just a reminder that we had an emergency announcement moments ago, which is that the ferry between Cortez and Quadra is down because of a whole problem. and um, The 1150 and the 150 have both been canceled, and they are running a water taxi to get uh, foot passengers uh, back and forth instead. So stay tuned. We're going to have a little bit of music, and then we'll be having... Uh, a representative, Kelly Fretwell from the Hack Eye Institute, on to talk a little bit more about additional tools for citizen science.
3: Sam, just
5: Satan, don't want to die uneasy, just let me go naturally.
1: You're listening to Folky Radio on CKTZ 89.5 FM, Cortez Community Radio. Today's show is all about tools for citizen science. And if all goes well, we're going to be joined in a moment by Kelly Fretwell from the Hakai Institute uh, based off of nearby Quadra Island. And I just want to do a quick reminder before that that we have had a notice today that the ferries between Quadra and and Cortez are currently non-operational. So uh, the 1150 was canceled. The 150 is canceled. This is on Friday, February 25th. So if you're listening to a repeat of the show, this hopefully still does not apply. But today, Friday, the 25th, the ferries are currently canceled and there is a water taxi taking foot passengers back and forth instead. And Kelly, do I have you online? Yes, you do. Hi. Hi. Thank you. Um, I'm so glad that the connection worked. <laughs> I always feel like we have uh, created a small miracle when it does work. So thank <laughs> you for being part of that. No, thank you for inviting me on. Um, so could we start with, uh, we, we've actually had a quite a bit of Hakai um, uh, on the radio recently, but could you start with just a little bit of a background about uh, who and what the Hackeye Institute is and what your mission is?
6: Sure. Yeah. First, um, I'll apologize if you hear uh, a bit of background sound. I'm right overlooking the harbor in Victoria, and there's a, a float plane that looks like it might take off soon. So hopefully that's not an issue for the listeners. Um, but uh, yeah, Hakai is a scientific research institute. Uh, we conduct long-term environmental research along the BC coast. Uh, and so the the, the general Goal is environmental, but it's across scientific disciplines from ecology, ocean physics, and chemistry, geoscience, so geology, geospatial science, archaeology, and more. And we also have a, a great media team, which, which I'm a part of, <laughs> um, the science commu- communication side of things. Um, biodiversity has always been a big focus of our work, though, despite the, um, the broad breadth of interdis- interdisciplinary work that we have going on. Uh, and we we focus on using technology, long-term uh, monitoring, long-term science, and data collection to better understand the environment of the BC coast and how it's changing. And we started off on uh, on Calvert Island was was the main hub for for quite a while, um, and uh, the focus the big focus was ecology. And we since expanded in scope and in locations, and now Quadra Island is sort of the main. Uh, year-round station and we do we still have work going on on Calvert Island which is on the central coast
1: it feels so uh, just really neat um, as an islander to have such important work being based uh, on our neighboring island and to feel like um, despite or maybe because of our remote location that we can be important in this kind of scientific work so I find that pretty exciting
6: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's, it's uh, exciting to be growing our, our presence there and um, growing our operations there. And I, I started with Pac Eye uh, two years ago, so during the pandemic. So my ability to be present is, you know, COVID limitations have, have come into play a little bit, but it's just such a wonderful area, and I really enjoy working there um, when, when that's a possibility.
1: Well, it's pretty exciting to see some of the um, ever growing. Um, projects and relationships that are happening between Hakai and our and Foci here and other citizen groups on the island. So, I'm really appreciating learning more about that. We just heard a little bit more about the Dungeness crab monitoring project, which sounds pretty exciting. What do you, mm-hmm. I, I'm wondering, what your thoughts are about? the role and the potential of citizen science or of using, as I like to say, just sort of the common folk or neighbors in um, being part of data collection and monitoring?
6: For sure. Um, So just to preface, uh, HACA has been involved in some citizen citizen science programs in various ways. Um, Like um, Helen mentioned Project Watershed, and I know there's been previous connections with Project Watershed's forage fish survey work. But... That was, you know, providing resources and, um, and assistance. Uh, but we've only somewhat recently started dipping, officially dipping our toes into, uh, the citizen science potential, um, in the area. And so, uh, we're speaking from, um, I'm, I'm also, when I come to, when I'm speaking about this, I'm speaking from my own personal experience from, from, uh, previous, uh, previous positions where citizen science has been a role. Um, but from my own, uh, uh, perspective, citizen science can have a bunch of different purposes, so depending on the project or the goals or the the resources that you have, um, but in the environmental realm, uh, I think it can play a big role in conservation outreach and education, which Helen touched on definitely, um, and it increases people's connection with nature, and it can decrease barriers to involvement in science for people who might not have, you know, have studied science or have, um, Maybe they've always had this passion, but they haven't had a chance to really uh, apply it in, in some way for, for some reason or other. Uh, but I think citizen science has a huge potential for contributing to uh, scientific knowledge as well, So especially in the environmental and eco- ecological sciences, because it's so place-based. And so uh, I, Helen also touched on this. Who better to help study something than people actually live there and can provide more, more eyes on the ground? Um, and more local
1: knowledge about about a place. I love it. That's really inspiring. And, um, and it feels also really special to get to live and love in a place and to get to work with uh, scientists and people who have the rigorous examination tools to learn how to um, combine one's love with also those kinds of skills. So um, mm-hmm. it's pretty neat. And it,
6: it doesn't have to be involvement like a huge, huge uh, commitment of involvement. Like Mike was talking about the the role that he's playing with the Light Trap Project, which is awesome and is so exciting to hear about um, and hear about his uh, enthusiasm for for this project. But that is also a bigger commitment. There are options to be involved at um, uh, lesser sort of commitment levels. Um, it can be, you know, as casual as you know observing, uh, observing species when you're on a hike. And so I can talk a little bit more about my favorite way to do that. If that works with your
1: Oh yeah. I'm, I would love to hear about that. And, um, you know, all ranges of, of projects that you know, that are going on in ways that people might be able to get involved. So yes, tell us.
6: Sure. Yeah. So, um, I first started to, uh, or my, my role with I started through, I was working for the B.C. Parks Foundation, who was they were ramping up a, a project called the B.C. Parks iNaturalist project with some project partners at the University of Victoria and Simon Fraser University and B.C. Parks, and the goal was to use this citizen science tool called iNaturalist to document as many species as they could in B.C.'s provincial parks and protected areas. Um, And so that since then I've become a huge advocate for iNaturalist and we've been finding ways to bring it into Hackeye's work in various contexts. And so iNaturalist is, um, I might just refer to it as iNat because that's the lingo that tends to be used. Um, It's a website and a free app that's used worldwide to document and share photo observations of biodiversity. So any wild organism that you see, Um, plants, animals, fungi, lichens, algae, any sign of biodiversity like nests or tracks or bones or shells can be recorded with a photo and then put on the iNaturalist database. And there's a few different ways that people use this. You can use it to learn about the species around you and how to identify species. You can get help. So it's an online community where people can can help someone figure out what species they've seen so you can get help with IDing something that you found and photographed. Um, And you can also use it to explore species found in different regions that you maybe live in or that you visit. And, yeah, iNaturalist, I think, is just a really great um, sort of gateway tool to seeing the potential of citizen science. And uh, for me, it really has helped hone my own observation skills for the species around me from, like, the tiniest little little lichens encrusting
1: on trees to, you know, the birds that I see flying by. I, and I, I have a couple friends who are, I would maybe obsessed is not too strong a word even with iNaturalist <laughs> and they really have um, taken it very seriously, particularly on Cortez to, to record uh, species um, and what they're seeing and what they're finding. So, um, so I know and I also know a number of youth who actively participate in it. So that's come up a couple times today, the potential for engaging youth in um, in the work of citizen science. So um, the iNaturalist seems like just a brilliant tool to become a a casual, uh, maybe casual observer is not right, but to take your observation skills and have you be a casual contributor to some larger, important database. Um
6: that- yeah, definitely and um, so it started off as this online community for learning and sharing biodiversity observations, but it's definitely grown over time to be a place where uh, it's become the world's largest repository of citizen science data um, and by, uh, professional and amateur experts are adding their own data, adding their own expertise, so helping people identify what they see. Um, and then data is also being used for a bunch of different applications. So I'm, I've increasingly seen papers using, using data from iNaturalist to um, talk about, you know, first occurrences of, say, an invasive species in a new location, that sort of thing.
1: So this really gets to something I was trying to find out from Helen, which is, um, you know, I think it's fantastic to collect data, but I love hearing that it's actually going to then... To be used, um, that there's a way to make use of it. So you're saying that iNaturalist already the data in that program is starting to um, to be used.
6: Yeah, you can sort of think of it as um, a long term data set. I mean, it's not as rigorous as you know scientists who go to a location and. Uh, write down every single variable and every single species um, you know, regularly over time because it, it, it's dependent on people's presence in a location and people's willingness to take photos and contribute them online. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it is, uh, it's open source data, which means that anyone, any scientist can, can use that data for whatever work they're doing. And so if people are contributing photos, say, you know, from like 20 years ago, then or even further, I, I think there's records of or uh, some people have been sharing, you know, old photo slides and trying to find ways to get film photography on as well, not just digital photography. Um, that gives you a good, a really strong uh, data set of, of what species are found in regions um, that people are visiting, at least.
1: That's uh... I, I, I love the idea. Tell us about some of the other programs or tools that you are seeing and um and love to get people involved with.
6: Uh so for for iNaturalist, I'll I'll continue on that thread. Um that, that's been our main our main go-to tool for getting citizens involved or people involved in sea star wasting monitoring. Um so Sea Star Wasting, Helen gave a good a good introduction to Sea Star Wasting and the reasons why we want to be monitoring it. Um, so it's been part of HACA's rocky intertidal monitoring on Calvert Island, on the central coast, for years. And then last year we set up a, a trial year of, uh, it was our sort of pilot pilot year to set up plots, uh, a few plots on Quadra Island to go to regularly over the summer and um, count as many Sea Stars, um, as we saw there, and, and identify if they have signs of wasting or not. Um, and we decided that because of the, the surrounding community, um, it would be a great opportunity to get community involvement because you know, those, those three plots are great that we, we go to when we visit them, but they're not eyes all over the Discovery Islands region. And so uh, this this tool of iNaturalist is a great, like easy-access way for us to try to get people's eye, more eyes on the ground, more people involved in keeping an eye out for signs of sea star wasting. And so the, the goal was to get uh, as many people as we could. We, gave the, we put the call out to folks uh, around the Discovery Islands, focusing mostly on Quadra and Cortez, but you know, whoever in the region was able to join and help us out, or join remotely, I guess. Um, and uh, asking people to either, you know, when you're on a beach, um, take a photo and you see sea stars, take a photo and uh, upload that to iNaturalist, or if you wanted to be more involved, um, once a month at the low tide, and we got a number of people from, from FOCI, um, FOCI volunteers who joined us with this, um, go to the same beach once a month at the low tide and take photos of all the, all the sea stars that you see and uh, Try, well, if, if you can, take photos of uh, if there are signs of wasting or not and add those to iNaturalist. So it's, it's more of a, a regular monitoring effort than the casual, I'm at the beach, I see a sea star um, component, but both are really valuable because they, they provide ways for HACI to have an understanding of, as we start to build this, this program up in this region, um, gives us an understanding of where where sea stars are being found and where potentially they should be monitored more. So if we decide, you know, that, that last year was our pilot year, so um, time will tell us if, if we expanded it. But if we were to decide to expand it, it would give us an opportunity to um, have... It would give prior data to figure out where the where the best places to put these
1: rigorous plots are. So the, the kind of... Um there's multiple levels, and it seems like of kind of citizen involvement in something like this. Like there's a sort of general um, collecting of data that is happening through this incredible tool of iNaturalist, but then it also allows then a deeper level of monitoring um, through those who are ready to to commit to a, a more rigorous um, level of, of watching. Um, through. Definitely,
6: and I was I was so pleased by the the amount of. Um, response that I got from Sokai volunteers we had uh, we had some core volunteers who were sending updates you know not just one day on the low tide but for a few days in a row and oh I felt I felt for them because they, they wanted to go out during the um, the heat wave that we had and I, you know I was I was also out there on um, on one of our plots uh, doing the, the regular monitoring um, of our of our sea star plots and it was it was a hot day and I I so appreciated the, the commitment that
1: they had. Uh, yeah, you had to be committed to be going, mm-hmm. to wanting to do anything during the, the mm-hmm. heat. Uh, so what are some of the other potentials then for, say, Seastar wasting and, and what Hackeye might do then to continue to build off um, these citizen science efforts? Like, do you, like, is there other places that might go and other ways that then you might be able to turn these projects into something even bigger?
6: Well, we're still, I think, in the early stages of of this particular component of that project. But I can say that, um, in general, iNaturalist observations of sea stars have played a big role in contributing to uh, the data sets that have been used to know, um, to understand the the degree to which uh, the Sunflower Star, which Mike mentioned, Sunflower Stars um, had died out. And... The, uh, yeah, iNaturalist was, was one of the data sets that was used by researchers when they were trying to determine, including, there's a HackEye researcher involved in this as well, um, including, uh, sorry, I lost my train of thought. Um, uh, the data set is, is uh, super valuable in contributing to their understanding of, um, of how much the sunflower star has died out. and has played a big role in um, the, the ability to get sea uh, star or sunflower stars um, listed by the, the IUCN as critically endangered. Um, so that was one of, like, a, a huge number of data sets, but it was one data set that spanned the entire, the entire stretch of the coastline where they were, they were looking at the, the loss of sunflower stars.
1: Wow. That, it really feels like it's changing the face of, of science Um, and allowing in many ways for things to be for maybe um, our awareness and also our regulations to be more um, responsive.
6: Mm -hmm. And I think one one really valuable thing about this is you can contribute, contribute whatever you see, whatever you take photos of. And you may not know if it's a useful piece of data, but as we've seen with sunflower stars, big changes can happen with species that were once ubiquitous, like this Sunflower star was seen um, all the time by divers, and, you know, our one of our videographers said that he just really didn't capture it very much before uh, sea star wasting occurred, because he thought, well, it's everywhere. It's kind of like, um, like if you're, what, like, why would you take photos of salal? Because it's everywhere. <laughs> um, but but since then, uh, you know, with the disappearance, it's become, those, those individual observations have become so valuable. And... Uh, yeah it really shows that you don't know where your your data could could go in the future what what you could be contributing to
1: um i i i'm not quite ready yet to start taking photos this allow, but I, <laughs> I do appreciate how quickly what we can just take for um granted can change um and you know helen also mentioned that in england with the with the house sparrow i think she called it um And we're seeing that, you know, we're in the middle of a huge species die out these days. So in our lifetimes, we're all kind of experiencing and watching so much of that happen. Um, So it feels a little bit less dire when when it seems like we might be able to be part of collecting data that will help protect at least some of these species, we hope.
6: Yeah, and that's um, a driving force behind that BC Parks iNaturalist project that I mentioned. Um, that Hakai has assisted with in in um, a few ways. Last summer, we hosted them on Quadra Island, and they did a really, really thorough survey of the provincial parks around um, the Discovery Islands. And we're hoping to to pair again with them this year for um, potentially more um, bio blitzes like that. Um, yeah, it, their 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 goal there is to really document as much as they can while we still have it, and and uh, hope that, that that data really can contribute to um, understanding of how much we have existing right now and how much we have the potential to lose with you know, climate change and other and other factors like that.
1: So, talk to us a little bit more about this idea of the bio blitz. What is what is a bio blitz, and how can um, you know, people be involved in, and what does it do?
6: Sure, yeah. A bio blitz is um, an, an event where you have an intensive focus on finding and identifying all the living species, so as, or as many as possible, in a designated area for a set period of time. And it can be involvement from you know our, our hackey ones have previously been focused on you know, bringing. Experts and scientists up to Calvert Island to to do these bioblitzes, but the the general idea of a bioblitz is whoever is around in that region um, and wants to contribute uh, can can join in, whether they're you know experts or casual naturalists or volunteers or you know families with kids or students. Um, and the goal is to document as much as you as you can, but also enjoy nature and learn and contribute to. The understanding of, of species in that designated spot—that is the the bioblitz region. So our our bio bioblitzes have been um, so far mostly on Calvert Island, where you know we had to um, you know, fly fly uh, specialists in um, because it's a little trickier place to get to. But uh, I think we we have plans going forward. This last year was the start of the the UN decade of Ocean Science for Sustainable Development and part of that um, we we think will probably include increasing bio blitzes in or Hacke's role in, in increasing bio blitzes in uh, locations that have more of a population around and so getting getting people involved in these bio blitzes will definitely be on the docket in the future.
1: Uh, w- a lot of people in Cortez, particularly those with kids, have gotten to be part of bio blitzes over the years because uh, Foci and um, Sabina, who's uh, we've brought up a couple times in the show, who's one of our local scientists, have helped bring scientists and naturalists to to cortez and then the youth of the island come and um spend often a couple nights in the children's forest especially here and do a 20 you know then get to participate in the sort of 24 hours of tracking as many of different species as is possible so they've done moss and they've done um, different insect species and all sorts of other things that I don't all remember. So, um, so is is are bio blitzes things that have been going on for a while um, as a way to en- you get a lot of people engaged in a short period of time of data collection, or is this a relatively new concept? What do you know about the history of this?
6: Oh, that's a good question. Um, they have been going on for for quite a while, uh, as far as I'm aware. You know, the answer. I, I know where I could find the answer. Then we have. We have a, a book, the sort of 10-year anniversary of Hackeye was celebrated with a book called Heart of the Coast um, by Tyee Bridge, who's now one of our, our media team members. Um, and I can picture the page on there that it says exactly uh, the, the origin of the idea, the idea of a bio-blitz. Um, but it is it is a well-established idea. It's definitely not, not a new thing. Um, and, you know, it can take a whole variety of forms from, you know, a, a focus on getting people out and uh, looking around them to see see what species they can find to, you know, a very rigorous, you know, procedural, um, collect as much as you can. And then, you know, our, our Hakai, uh bioblitzes have involved taking DNA samples, so then we can um, match the, we can add to this growing, it's called the um, Barcode of Life Database, uh, a growing, Library of the world's um, uh, species DNA, and so the goal with that is that maybe sometime in the future, if if all the, the if DNA for all species are is um is recorded in this in this uh, library of life, then you can scoop some water up and use the environmental DNA to understand um, uh, what species are found in, in an area. That's that's the whole other side of things, though, so I won't, I won't go down that train that of thought yet.
1: <laughs> that sounds amazing and uh, well worth an entire show. So, uh, <laughs> oh, <you>
6: know, yeah, <laughs> maybe we can see about making that happen in the future. We've got some, some people who are working on environmental DNA. That would be exciting to, to have them on.
1: Yeah, I would love that. And I've already, uh, when I was talking to Eric previously on a previous show with Hack Eye, um got really excited about the Heart of the Coast book. So I'm going to have to try to twist Tai's arm and uh, and feature that as well. <laughs> um, so tell us a little bit more about what is upcoming with Hackeye, projects that you're excited about, um, and ways that people might be able to get involved.
6: Mm-hmm. So we're definitely continuing on with our C-STAR wasting monitoring, and it would be amazing if if other folks around Quadra and Cortez and whoever is listening would like to get involved. Um, We're we're definitely looking for more people to use iNaturalist to contribute their findings, and there's the potential uh, for in-person meetups, potentially. There's always COVID caveats these days, but uh, we were... We've been keeping our fingers crossed, hoping that maybe maybe we could you know, do some little mini day-long or you know low tide um, little bio blitzes of our own uh, when um, when COVID allows. Um, so there's the the sea star wasting monitoring component, which will start when the the low tides start to happen during the day. Right now we've got some nighttime low tides, which is not as feasible or appealing, I think. <laughs> um, but uh, starting in May, I think is when the the tide starts to get low enough. It's, it's around, um, I think, 0. 0.6 meters. Or sorry, yeah, 0. 0.6 meters is our our threshold generally for what constitutes a decent enough low tide to start surveying for sea stars. Although you can see them to a meter or so. Um, and aside from that, uh, the light trap project has been mentioned a few times. Um, and I think Mike did a, a great job of, of talking about that. Uh, that one is uh, slated to start. Um, the, the lights will start turning on at night um, at locations around the Salish Sea uh, with partners who, who've become part of this project. Um, the, lights will, the lights for those chats will start turning on. I think it's April 15th is the date. So you can imagine that date um, at whatever, whatever nightfall or dusk is um, a bunch of little, little lights on little light traps around Salish Sea will all go on ready to start collecting uh, data on, on dungeness crabs. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to that one. Um, it's just a very cool visual of having these little lights popping up around the Salish Sea all at the same time. And I think that actually um, uh, brings up a, a question that you had earlier about the, the um, scope of that, of that project. While Hakai is focusing on the Salish Sea, from I think we have partners from southwestern and southeastern Vancouver Island up to Quadra and Cortez. Um, we also have partners, and this project actually originally came from um, partners to the south in Washington State, so there's also uh, light, Traps, light trap projects happening down there. Um, and then other things I'm excited about, oh, there's so much going on with Hakai, it's kind of hard to Sometimes hard to keep track of everything. Um, I think we've got uh, a bio blitz in the works, um, very early stages right now, but a bioblitz in the works for later in the year, and uh, that will be um, in the the false Creek region of vancouver and um, yeah, I think that's all that's coming to mind right now, but there's all sorts of habitat, so the, the thing about HACA's work is a lot of it is ongoing monitoring, so stuff that has happened, happened in previous years will be continuing this year, so we'll have our, our uh, uh, research technicians going up on regular low-tide um, times to, to monitor stretches of, of the central coast of um, our location there on, on Calvert Island, and uh, we'll have... Uh, yeah, just lots of regular monitoring happening as our, our field season starts to ramp up
1: again. It's really exciting. So if people want to get involved or just learn more about the potential, um, should they go to your website? Can you remind them what the website is? And if they know that they want to volunteer for one of these projects, what do they do?
6: For sure. Um, our website is Hackeye.org. Fairly simple. Um and if you want to learn more about the, the Light Trap project, you can go to sentinels.hackeye.org. Uh, you can also uh, go to Hackeye.org iNaturalist to learn more about iNaturalist. And there are links there out to our various iNaturalist projects that we have going on, um, and what we, one of which is a Sea Star project. Um, and the way that these projects work is they, they collect the observations uh, by whoever is is making them um, within the the designated region. So there's one I've set up for Discovery Islands that collects all the the observations of uh, sea stars in the Discovery Islands. And I was just looking at it earlier that uh, we've increased in the past year and a half or so um, from 21 people involved in it um, and about 115 sea star observations to now there's 100 people involved and uh, 490 observations. So some of those observations predate our, our work with this because, uh, or, you know, are happening anyway because people are using iNaturalist uh, just out and about during their daily lives. But um, I was really excited to see the, the bump in both people involved and, and numbers of sea stars observed uh, since we started putting out the call out for for observations in the region, Um I got sidetracked. I was going on. Uh, I was talking about resources to to learn more. Um, if you have any further questions or are having trouble finding the the specific website that I mentioned, um, feel free to email me at kelly.fretwell, F-R-E-T-W-E-L-L, at hackeye.org. And I'll be happy to answer any questions.
1: And I'm just going to remind people that Hakai is H-A-K-A-I dot org. Mm -hmm. I got that right, didn't I? Yes, definitely. Thank you. Um, I I was looking back at some uh, older emails and realized that it's not that actually easy to spell. Um,
6: It's one of those things where when you, you say it or you know it well enough, you kind of forget that it's not...
1: As intuitive. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, well, and uh, I just actually posted something today that um, we can also reveal, we're going to talk more about it next week, but both Hackeye and Vokai, Friends of Cortez Island, are going to be involved with an SD72, School District 72, pilot project next year that takes place on Cortez, and we'll be bringing Hackeye scientists and working with um, citizen scientists and naturalists from Friends of Cortez Island to do a high school program on Cortez, using Cortez as the campus for both Cortez Islanders and um, kids throughout the school district. So uh, you can go to cortezisland.com to learn a little bit more about the Cortez Island Academy, which pilot program will happen next year. But we are so lucky that we're going to get some of the youth of the region trained up on things like iNaturalist and other tools for citizen science, thanks to Hackeye Institute and Foci and um, these amazing partners that are in the area it feels like a huge thing so i'm very excited to be able to talk about it and we're going to learn more next week
6: it's exciting to to connect with our our neighbors for sure
1: Thank you so much for taking the time today and for all the work you're doing. I hope we're going to be able to meet you sooner rather than later in person at some of the exciting projects that you're helping to lead in this area. And I hope this is just the beginning of lots of featuring Hakai and you in particular on Folky Radio.
6: Thank you very much for having me on. It's exciting.
1: Uh, well, certainly my pleasure. Uh, and uh, thank you, neighbor, for joining us for another Folk You Radio this Friday on Folk You Radio, CKTZ 89.5 FM, Cortez Community Radio. Uh, you can learn more about Hakai. Uh, institute and the things that we learned today at hackeye.org, h-a-k-a-i dot org. You can learn about more about Friends of Cortez Island or Foci at org. And as always, you can reach out to me at the letter U at folk U F O L K U ca i'd love to hear from you uh, i would love to hear questions or to help point you in the right direction if you get excited about participating in some of the amazing things we learned more about and i will be back in a moment for some more announcements
0: think, think.
1: that's it for another edition of folk you radio if you'd like to learn more about Folk U or subscribe to our podcast series, visit us at folku.ca. That's f o l k u.ca. Folk U is produced at CKTZ 89.5 FM Cortez Radio.ca. My little brains almost
0: always got something lame it's got to say. It's embarrassing. All the stupid things I can't.
1: Listening to CKTZ 89.5 FM Cortez Community Radio. This is your host of Folk U Radio, Amanda O. Fox Gillespie. I wanted to do a couple updates. We just got another ferry update. The ferry now between Cortez and Quadra, so our only ferry off the island, is down for the entire rest of the day. There is a structural problem with its haul, so that's not good, and they're going to have to repair it. So the engineers are working on it, but it will not run for the entire rest of the day. Instead, they're running a complimentary water taxi for foot passengers, of course, only between um, between, uh, Cortez uh, and Quadra, or Quadra and Cortez. That's going to Um, Run on the traditional ferry schedule. So it will leave Cortez, the water taxi will leave Cortez at the government dock, from the government dock there in Whale Town at 150, 350, and 550, and will return from Harriet Bay government dock at 305, 505, um, back over here. So that's a big deal for a lot of people who might be stuck there. And I'm wondering, um, uh, you know, without a car, it's always a little bit more difficult than to get back. So hopefully there'll be people figuring out ways to um, shepherd people home also from the water taxis way out there. Uh, you can feel free to call into the radio station if you have another announcement around this or you have needs around this. We are here at 250-935-0200 to try to keep you connected and up to date with what's going on. Also wanted to let you know that every Friday, this Friday and every Friday at 5 o'clock, there are the WTF What the Folk? I've just I've just branded that that's not actually my meeting or anything else, but it kind of sounds good. The WTF meetings that happen um, right out on the Cedar Land, just behind the radio station, you can join outside with other Cortesians to talk about what the folk is going on in the world. So. Um, I've been hearing great things about those gatherings. They, despite the name, I feel like people are feeling pretty hopeful after they come away from neighbors coming together to share with neighbors. Uh, I believe in it. So thank you so much for, for all you do, neighbor. And I hope you'll join me next week for Folk You Radio as well, where we are going to talk about the high school programming that's coming up next year. Super excited to be able to also talk about some of the things that Hawkeye, Folk etc. will be bringing to uh, to, uh, Cortez Kayaks, Real Youth, etc. will be bringing to that program. Oh, and CKTZ. So it's an exciting program. We'll have people from the district here to talk a little bit more about it. And also we are looking for homestay families as part of that program. That's right. There will be international students and students coming from Campbell River to participate in this um, two-quarter or semester-long program next year for the fall and winter of 2022 and 2023, and we need host families to host these students. Um, We hope that you'll be involved. Uh, You are reimbursed for your costs of participation. You can learn more about this uh, next week, Wednesday, I believe that's March 2nd at 7 p.m. There is going to be a Zoom meeting with the district to learn more. There is an announcement today about all of this on um on uh, TidelineCortezIsland.com. You can also learn more by reaching out to me, uh, you at folku.ca, or sending an email to info at CortezIslandacademy.org, or reaching out to the School District 72 directly. All right, thank you guys so much for being part of this community and enjoy. I believe next up we have the End of the Road Show always one of my favorites I hope you it will be another good one I'm sure today thank you neighbor thank you.